You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us in this edition of our RSA Conference podcast series, where we'll be talking about zero trust architecture. Agility, zero trust, edge computing, and DevSecOps are industry terms often interpolated into strategy conversations. But our guests today assert that agility is not a strategy and zero trust is not a product you can buy. Before we hear more about why, I'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves. Diana, Faram? Hey, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I've been in IT for over 30 years, almost all of that focusing on security, cybersecurity. I'm currently the CTO at Security Curve and serving on the executive boards for Sightline Security and WESIF. Hi, Casey. Hi, Diana. I'm Swarm. I work at PayPal. Um, I have three different hats here. I am the Chief Information Security Officer for the Asia-Pacific region for PayPal, also look at our global technology and security risk management oversight function, and I lead our global security innovation and outreach. Really excited to be joining you guys. And we're really excited to have you. So thank you both so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. We have a lot to cover in today's discussion. So let's begin with the topic of zero trust. Diana, I wanted to start by asking you what you mean when you say that zero trust is an approach, not a product that you can buy. Yeah, you know, it's always so tempting to want a product or a set of products to solve complex security problems, but very often you really need a combination of the traditional people, process, and technologies. And in Zero Trust, it's the same way. It's really more about being a strategic deployment approach and an architectural strategy, and it's not something that you can solve for with, like, a single product. And that's in part because Zero Trust is really an extension of the Jericho Forum's deperimeterization work back in the early 80s. And that was the time when most organizations realized that the old school, but never quite true, you know, thinking about there was a trusted inside and untrusted outside, you know, companies were realizing that because of the mobile workforce, because of going to the cloud, that there really wasn't a trusted and untrusted inside-outside, that there was this big disparate set of systems that were interconnected, traveling over multiple CSPs outside of the corp net. And so that's where the, the concept of the term zero trust comes. And in order to accomplish a zero trust strategy, you really need to think about identity first and authorization and continuous verification. And that means being able to determine a risk profile um, based on the current factors during access. So that means the factors as that access is requested. And a simple example would be if you were on a corporate managed device, you wanted to get into your email, you'd already been um, authenticated, and you're allowed access to that email. Now, let's say that you want access to the same email five minutes later. It may appear that you're on the same device, but now you're suddenly in a different part of the world. Instead of being in the United States, maybe you're in Singapore, for example. So that's going to be a different risk level, and that's that continuous verification part. So that's why, and even in that simple example, and it goes so much more deeply in zero trust, but in that simple example, think about what we discussed. We talked about directories, identity management, email, access control, and that's why you can't really just look at zero trust as a single product or even a set of products. It's really more about the architectural strategic approach to be able to do continuous verification. 
So it's really a, a strategy as opposed to, oh, this is the silver bullet. I can buy this product and, and fix all of my security woes. Exactly, yeah. In what ways will the geopolitically driven divisions of the Internet continue to evolve? And how will this balkanization of the Internet forum impact zero-trust architecture? At the risk of um, sounding too philosophical, uh, maybe, you know, if you look at the evolution of Internet over the last two decades, you can see that, you know, it has primarily been what was an alternative to existing solutions, um, from access to knowledge, to banking, to even networking. Everything that the Internet was enabling was to make experiences that already existed in the analog world easier, faster, cheaper, better. At least that has been the intent, right? However, as Internet nears ubiquity, we're now starting to look at it completely differently. It has become its own ecosystem, its own virtual world, if you will. And countries and and economies and markets are looking at it as its own asset and liability, unlike any other, that now the governments and the regulators have to come in and in the context of national security, economic enablement, global agreement have to try to look at how do their national priorities can be leveraged or hindered through what Internet uh, enables within their own countries. So bringing that context to the local company level, especially within a multinational organization like PayPal, uh, if you look at China, India, Vietnam, in this region in Asia-Pacific where I'm based, or even Europe and most recently U.S., you can see that access to data systems, and ultimately the users, is being controlled in a very, very different way on the Internet. In that realm, zero-trust architecture enables organizations to redefine the entire concept of what Diana was speaking, the network segmentation, the perimeter, the zones that allow very granular control at the user, machine, and even activity levels. And, you know, especially in, in this world where we are cohabited with coronavirus, we also want to give access to all employees from anywhere, anytime, using any device of their choice to make sure that they are able to do, uh, you know, what they are being paid to do, what the customers want to do through a medium that has been, you know, enabled uh, called Internet. At the organizational level as well, what we used to consider the crown jewels of a company are increasingly getting distributed across SaaS and cloud and in a rather complex supply chain environment. And, and you know, something that China alluded to is identity can no longer be trusted based on just username and password, right? The detective approach of letting a user be trusted once they submit the correct login credentials and then monitor them for any kind of anomalous behavior, while it sounds good, hasn't really worked the way we want. And that all of that kind of brings us to zero trust. How do you dynamically verify a particular user or an event based on real-time facts, irrespective of what those facts were a minute ago, and momentarily, within context, trust a specific activity to occur? So... You know, if you look at what John Kinderberg at Forrester when he created the thesis around uh, zero trust of inherent risk, both inside and outside the network, we could see why this type of an architecture that has no implicit or inherent trust within it 
it looks at how do you verify and, and allow organizations to create these virtual boundaries within a land in, in, that allow you to comply with domestic requirements, to meet various requirements of your users, of your business, of your customers, uh, is what I mean by, you know, kind of in this new uh, world of where Internet is kind of creating uh, new boundaries and, and borders, uh, an architecture like Zero Trust will not only allow organizations to create those borders to comply with the local requirements, but also allow organizations to continue uh, to provide the resources that their employees need, that their customers need to access their services. It's really interesting, you know, you talk about the Internet um, being the access, the gateway to the business. So, for human beings who we want to and who also want to be able to do their job from anywhere at any time, right? Which then does really mean that identity of the user is so intrinsically important. So, you know, can you explain to our listeners the ways that identity will continue to become increasingly more important in a zero trust approach? Like what do security teams do with that? Yeah, to build on what Forum was saying, you know, Zero Trust really depends on this ongoing continuous assessment, validation, verification of access. And you can't just use a simple username and, and, and password. Right? These, these credentials can be stolen to say, well, once you've given me that set of credentials, now you can do everything, right? Because it's going to be continuous. And as you're accessing different different workloads or different servers as you're doing your work, there can be this continuous verification and zero trust. But you still have to get some idea of what that entity is. So that starts with identity. And that's why identity really becomes the bullseye of the zero trust uh, program and strategy. Being able to know what that entity is also doesn't just mean people. So sometimes people will think, well, it's it's just users. But Zero Trust also needs to have identity extend to a number of entities. So that includes things like devices, workloads, and servers. And it really becomes now the starting point for the successful implementation of Zero Trust. So interesting. Right. I hadn't thought of that, that it's more than just a human being, the devices themselves. So as a follow-up to that, what are some strategies for managing the identity life cycle that will become critical, and how do security teams ensure they are doing that correctly? Well, I'm going to quote somebody, a very, very smart somebody, uh, Mark Diodati. He's currently at Gartner, and he's just one of the smartest identity experts in the world, I would say. And, and he taught me this years ago that the entire integrity of the Identity Lifecycle Program begins with the initial validation and creation of that canonical identity. So, in other words, you know, if you start a race out on the wrong foot, then everything's going to be limping and broken from there on that out. So, you have to start with understanding what that identity is, again, whether it's a person, a device, a workload, a server, and, and being able to confirm that at a high level. So in this time of predominantly remote workers, for example, this is more important than ever because we're onboarding new users sometimes without actually seeing them physically at the, the organizations. They're getting onboarded from home. So making sure that those entities are vetted and verified properly. So ways to do that, start again with that you know very secure uh, validation of that entity at the beginning. Have a secure and accessible identity store or directory. You know, most of these are now in the cloud, and that enables integration and extensibility with partners and customers and SIAM. So 
identity directory and some sort of directory in the cloud, really, really important for zero trust and just for identity management in general. Monitor of credential use and signs of theft. So look at things like you can go look on the quote dark web and paste in, see if you've got, you know, look at I've been pwned, for example, to see if your um, corporate credentials have been compromised. And this is really critical because a lot of people still, unfortunately, are reusing their passwords outside of the corporate environment. They kind of get attached to a password and reuse it. So you want to keep monitoring because even if it's one of your employees, if their personal account was, was compromised, it could be that they reused a password. Now, I get that, that there's training about not doing that, but unfortunately, some people still do that. Implement MFA because if the credentials are stolen, if you're using multi-factor authentication, the ability for the attacker to actually use them themselves, now they're not going to be able to do that. Regularly uh, curate and check access. There's an old adage in IT that the longer somebody works at a company, the more access they have because as they move from job to job, they don't lose access. They just get more and more added over time like a big snowball. So you want to cut down that snowball and make sure that the access they have is really only what they need for the business. And then this sinks right into that end of life cycle management. When an identity is leaving your organization, make sure that all of their access is revoked. Um, we've got very omni-channel complex systems where we have identities and, and, and partner environments when we work at a company for um, some of our, you know, for extended consulting, for example, um, for healthcare. So you get identities that in, in a corporate environment now are extending, you know, outside of the organization. So you want to make sure not just that you've understood all of the channels that that user or identity had access to while they were inside of the corporate organization, but also anything that was federated outside of the company too. Um, because otherwise what you end up with, and this is still very common, You'll see zombie accounts and people having access for years after they've left an organization. So really cleaning up that identity lifecycle can help a lot with your zero trust. And it truly is a life cycle, right? And and one of those things that if you take all of those steps that you had just outlined for us, you're able to really quickly respond when something looks fishy, right? Um, and so agility becomes super important, but for um. I want to switch gears and talk about this idea of agility, which you said is not a strategy. What do you mean by that? So agility clearly is, is extremely important. But what I mean is if you think about traditional IT and, and security as a function of that, we had environments that were kind of slow, siloed with different teams, whether development, engineering, technology, security, doing their own thing. And security, for the most part, has been uh, in those environments very, very compliance-driven, at least as far as financial services is concerned. And then 10 years or so ago, you know, DevOps as a concept was introduced to bring in uh, speed and, and agility in terms of giving developers the power to own their own, you know, VMs and, and software-defined networks. And, and while it became fast, it was still competitive because you still had symmetrics in its environment. And security became a bit of a bolt-on thing. So you bolt on traditional security solutions and frameworks where you have traditional tech IT and you do some other aspects where you have containers and VMs and other things. And then in that evolution, we came to DevSecOps where we were able to not only keep the good aspects of uh, DevOps, which is, again, agility and speed, but also bring collaboration. And for the first time, I believe security is being looked at 
you know, risk-based and repeatable and recursive. But what that allows is where security, you know, from being a, a pain for the developers, for the engineering team, can be an enablement, right, where you make compliance as a code, where you allow the developers to truly bake security into the design of what they are trying to do. And hence, you know, the whole concept of not just over-index on something like automation or agility, but to look at how do you leverage concepts like zero trust and build frameworks in whatever services and then applications that you do are, are creating, have a, a very comprehensive, collaborative, risk-driven approach where you do not separate out these silos that existed earlier because it's not possible to do that or one fails, everybody else fails as well. So it's it's something that PayPal has been you know fascinated with for the last few years with thousands of engineers that we have been constantly investing in in building tools and and uh, frameworks to equip our developers with baking security in, into the code that they write and, and allow them to use whatever stack they want as long as you know these frameworks and the design aspects are agreed upon and and then complied with from a purely uh, risk-based approach. It's interesting. We hear a lot about DevSecOps, DevSecOps. It's it's somewhat become a bit of a buzzword across the industry, right? Diana, how do developers and security teams move from the buzzword to reality without losing these critical steps that Oren had talked about, like threat modeling and comprehensive AST? You make such a great point about the buzzwordiness, and it actually makes me a little bit sad that I think that the buzzword has gotten more pickup than um, actual DevSecOps in practice, which is a, a little bit disappointing, but I think that now we're starting to see some real deployments of true DevSecOps um, and it, it's when teams are aware that it's DevOps is really it's post agile, but it's not a way to avoid doing planning or robust design and, and documentation. So sometimes you get this kind of this attitude of like we're just going to go start coding, and it, it really ends up being ready shoot aim. And you still have to ready aim shoot even when you're doing DevSecOps. But with the right planning, you can, in fact, get that additional speed. And the other thing that, that happens a lot of times when, when organizations are looking at this adoption is that they can get caught in the old iron triangle thinking of faster, cheaper, more secure. You can only pick two, which is really ridiculous because it's always going to be a balance between those. You know, what matters right now for this particular deployment, for this workload, for this application? So it may be that you need it faster and you can trade off a little bit of security or you just have to get it out there as cheaply as possible so you may trade off some speed for that. And that's going to happen on every single time that you're doing a project. But once you get used to the DevSecOps balance, then you can start to do that appropriately for each app or workload as it's being deployed or developed. So to implement this approach in practice does, again, mean planning and planning for activities that include things like threat modeling, application security testing, whether that's static, dynamic, interactive, pen testing, a combination of all of those, but thinking about where in the process you're going to do them and how you're going to bring that in in as automated a fashion as possible. Because in the case of testing, really the best way to make sure it's going to happen is to integrate and automate it. 
And that can look a little bit different depending on which stack you're working on or which cloud you may be building on. But generally with testing tools, this means to ensure that they're fully integrated into the process as early as possible. And that's where you get that shift left because it's much cheaper to fix a problem in your application early than later. So shift as much to the the design and the security and the threat modeling left as possible and integrate as much as possible instead of waiting until things like acceptance testing or even worse, you know, post-deployment, which is not the time to start your testing. You really want to start it early. That can be as early as, as the code is being written. So doing some kind of like syntax spell check as the developers are writing the code. And then as they check in the code at night, being able to test it, whether it's it's um, ready for compiled or it's just a feature or you can test code snippets, but doing an automatic test run overnight so that when the developers get back in in the morning, they've got feedback about where they are with their code. That can help a lot and really speeds up, creates that integration. And as Forum was talking about, really helps to empower them. Another really big win that can speed things up quite a bit is to start to implement things like software composition analysis. And I am just a huge fan of this because, you know, it's very rare that you find an application or workload that's been written from the ground up every single line of code. Normally, you reuse components or libraries that are available, and it makes sense. If you wanted to have an application, you want to have a website and you're selling this great new product, but you also want to help people find out where your store is, you're not going to go out and build a mapping app, right? You're going to use the existing mapping apps that are available. And that happens in so many different aspects and applications that are being developed now. There are great libraries and components for use. And in some cases, you really want to use an existing library, like in the case of cryptography. You don't want to go out and write your own algorithm. Use an existing algorithm and an existing library, for example. But you want to make sure that your, your developers are using approved versions of these components and libraries. So that's where software composition analysis comes in. It really brings the benefits of component use into the DevSecOps lifecycle, and it supports DevSecOps CICD while managing risks. It's so complicated, right, because some of the words that I heard in your response are, you know, starting early, early in the code development process and planning, but then also speed, right? And so it is complicated by the speed of development and production, but you really do have to slow down and plan in order to start that security process early in the cycle, so it's it's tricky trying to keep up but slow down in order to do it. I was just going to say if you if you ever do much cooking, you know, you think about like the prep work, if you prep beforehand, you can cook so much things like the chopping the vegetables and measuring things out, right? When it gets ready to cook, you can go so much faster if you've done the prep work in exactly. advance. And that's really a little bit what what it's like, yeah, with the shift left. That's a great example, right? Because it is about the planning. And when you do that planning ahead of time and you've got all of the ingredients and the chopping, then you can move much more quickly to developing the meal. I love it. So this is a question for both of you, but Forum, let's start with you. In a digital-first world, security has already become a mainstream topic within boardrooms. So what are the opportunities here for security teams and how can they differentiate their products and services? I think this is, um, you know, something a lot of organizations are dealing with right now. I mean, while COVID has made digital transformation a key priority for boardrooms, news of breaches, fines, new cyber regulations have become almost a daily thing now that 
uh, I personally have to deal with with various boards that we have. I mean, what senior leaders are, are starting to realize is that the security is no longer just a cost center, right? It can actually be a true business enabler. I mean, trust, if you think about it, above all, is the most priced commodity in this digital first world. And hence, for us as security professional community, I think we have a great opportunity to change the boardroom discussion from mere updates on risk metrics or initiatives uh, that we want to deploy while we are we have to you know make sure that those updates are there but how can we connect security to the larger mission and business objectives around engagement around growth around specifically something that is success for customers and their ability to perform online transactions in their ability to run their entire business digitally, in their ability to communicate with their partners and their customers at the end. So in that sense, I feel there is a lot of value that comes from the investments that organizations make, whether it is from a compliance and and being able to show how, again, for a multinational company or somebody who is in payments, looking at how you deal with the foundational, the baseline requirements then programs like Bug Bounty and others where you have a, an ability to get people, you know, crowdsource finding issues with your sites and talking about that with a lot of the learning that you get with the community and, and allowing people, if you have, are in the, the service of providing SDKs or APIs for people to run their own businesses to get the trust that by making you as a partner in in whatever their supply chain looks like is going to be another enabler for their business. And and increasingly, I mean, there's so many different value propositions in a, again, a digital first world, as you mentioned, uh, that the board is extremely interested in, in hearing how can you differentiate what you as an organization and, and security specifically as a function can do to make you stand out and, and, you know, at the end of the day, give that comfort of being a trusted partner in whatever success means to your customers. Yeah, and, and building off of what, what Form had said, you know, it's really, it, I think this is a great opportunity to open the dialogue between technical teams and executives because business risk is now intertwined with tech risk, so you don't want to have those decisions made in a silo. But as you're talking to the executives, it's really important to understand that people stop listening when they're scared. And what happens when people start hearing about security and breaches? It's really easy to get scared. But that's going to – people will stop listening. So when you talk to the board Absolutely, you need to be aware of the business and talk in the language of the business, but you also have to couch it and and balance being realistic about the threats and potential impacts with not scaring people and also not turning them off if it's too technical. So it's really, it's, and it's, it's one of these things that people say, I'm sure listeners have heard people say this before, but in practice, it can be really hard to get that balance right. So if you're not communicating with the board properly or you feel that they're not listening, sit back and really ask yourself, have you been clear about the the impacts and the risks, but not scary, which is very tricky? And also, have you really been able to help them understand the technology in a way that they can consume? 
And then what I think that this leads to as far as differentiation of product and service, once you've got that better communication with the board, if you're talking about building more security in or spending more money for security controls, uh, they're going to listen to you and be more trusting of what you say because you've had that open dialogue rather than them being a little bit scared. And you really do need that trust because a lot of boards are feeling like we spend so much money on security, but there's continued breaches. What are you guys doing wrong? So that's, again, where that dialogue really comes in because you want them to be your partner, as Forum was saying, and not just saying, why do we keep giving you money and you keep having breaches? The other side is if you are at a company that's creating a product and you need to build security into that product, you may get pushback from the executives about the fact that, you know, very often, although Every customer, almost every customer says that security matters and they want security in whatever product or solution they're buying. When it comes down to purchasing a product, when customers are saying, do I go with product A or product B, if product B is more expensive and you say, well, that's because it's more secure, you know, a lot of them will say, ah, I don't know, and they'll go with product A, even if they won't publicly admit that. That does happen. So as you're, you're talking to the board about building security in to differentiate your product or your solution, again, that trust, having that open dialogue will help a lot because you do need to build security in. Otherwise, you're going to have reputational impact and potentially even existential impact to the, the company if there's a big enough breach or, or problem coming out of your product. I mean, for example, if you were a car manufacturer and your failure to, to test your, your um, brake software properly resulted in death. Um, so, you know, there can be really big uh, impacts to not building security in, but you need to have that realistic conversation with the board and have them understand and trust you so that as you're saying, yeah, we may need to spend a little bit more for security, but in the long run, this is really going to benefit the company and the customers and, and give us longevity as an organization. That's something that can be absorbed more easily with that open line of communication. That's great advice from both of you. I do have one final question for both of you. Um, Diana, let's start with you this time. How can edge computing support sustainable security? Sure. Um, so edge, I'm just going to quickly define it because I think sometimes it gets to be a little bit fuzzy for people, but thinking of edge is literally the edge of the net. So the device is connected at the edge of the network. That could be your laptop. It could be the phone, um, IoT devices like light bulbs and cars. And this edge, right, it's really important that we make sure that these endpoints are secured. And these devices are running software, and we know that software degrades for security over time, whether that's because of vulnerability found in the software or it needs to get patched or there are security features or functions that need to be applied. So keeping that endpoint secure and, and sustainable is having a renewable approach to the software on that device. Have you built in a way to update that software, whether it's to update the firmware that's running on the MCU or if it's to, you know, launch a patch for something like an application running on a phone? So can you enroll that device into some sort of an update program and can it be updated uh, in, a, in a secure manner so that you keep that, that software sustainable, evergreen? That could be done over the air, for example, an OTA software update. Um, it could be uh, done by the Internet if we're talking about just one of your, your laptops, for example, or your phone, doing it over the cell network. Or um, in some cases with some USB devices, the best case for keeping that software sustainably updated is by using a USB device. 
So whichever is right for that device is going to be the right thing to keeping it secure on the edge. Um, another thing that really can help here is starting from a hardware-based route of trust. So knowing that not just the supply chain to validate the authenticity of the hardware components, but also the ability to store cryptographic keys in the hardware where they're protected from malicious tampering via software-based attacks. Um, there are a lot of other ways to support security sustainability at the edge, but I want to close with one aspect that I, I don't think a lot of organizations think about, and it, because we tend to, especially in the IT world, we think software, we think hardware. We don't think about squirrels, but um, when you're deploying IoT at the edge, right, very often some of these devices, they're outside, and they're going to be outside and not monitored. They're going to be in really strange environmental conditions, so it could be super hot. It could be snow, for example. You know, outside cameras, there are some that are, I, I live in, a, in a, an area that can get very cold in the winter in New England, and the outdoor cameras we bought were actually built and very successful in this part of the world because they were built for very, very cold climates. So part of that sustainability is, is being resistant to basically going end of life too early. So looking at the, the physical aspect of that device and where it's going to live outside, possibly unmonitored, with things like squirrels that could get very interested and chew on it. That can actually also help you with that sustainability quite a bit. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> Forum? You know, it's a fascinating topic and probably require another podcast altogether. But I think as organizations are just finally making their journey to the cloud and, and you know, getting comfortable with understanding how do you leverage the power that comes with the cloud, the ability for edge devices, whether it's your phone, cars, you know, microwave, all of them to be able to process data, to be able to store data through, you know, ideally uh, through a hardware uh, enabled security, uh, whether TPM or, or any of the other variations it is truly fascinating for businesses from a speed and, and just their ability to do things faster, better, cheaper for the customers. But you know, when you do that from a security perspective, something that Diana mentioned earlier, you know, your component analysis, where do you exactly make sure that the trust chain is maintained? And, and, you know, as you introduce new third parties into the overall ecosystem, new software and, and break it apart, it has certainly created new concerns and will create uh, even more as we uh, move in that uh, IoT first world where uh, there's a combination of either cloud or, or edge devices here and there. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of it is about the basics, right? I mean, the hygiene that have been created or before even the Internet was there are, are still the key principles of how we want to make sure the operating systems are updated, that the data that you have now with the power that you have, encryption is, is implemented. You certainly will need to create some new lightweight designs for cryptography and, and encryption algorithms, we'll have to do better visibility and automation in terms of monitoring what's happening on those devices. We'll have to look at access control concepts like Zero Trust and others that can support edge computing devices as well. But, you know, I mean, as they say, great power comes greater responsibility. And, and while we are enabling uh, an amazing uh, access and, and devices and ability for people to do a lot of these things, uh, we'll have to make sure that security kind of stays front and center in their minds, at least as far as the OEM and the manufacturers are concerned. Well, Diana, this has been a really 
fantastic conversation. I so appreciate your joining us today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. All of you, be well.